0: You are listening to Pod Save the Rest of Us. Thank you for tuning in. All right. Hey, before we get started, let's hear from one of our sponsors. Do your skin a solid with solid lotion bars. Your body heat melts these extremely moisturizing bars into usable lotion. Packaged in portable tins, these are great for the gym, travel, gift giving, and good for any person who's on the go. With many options to choose from, there's a solid bar just for you. My personal favorite is Citrus Bursts. So Pod Save the rest of us listeners, do us and your skin a solid by supporting our sponsor. Please visit Solid today at www.solidlotionbar.com. And to get your unlimited use savings, use the coupon code PODSAVE. Trust me, your skin will thank you. Easy going, easy come, where'd you get your info from? I found mine on Reuters. Fact-checked by three sources that were fact-checked for biases and are equal opportunity employers. Welcome, Pod Save the Rest of Us listeners. You're listening to Elizabeth Stanley. I, along with Karen Castro, bring you Season 3, Two Roads. We drew inspiration for this season from Robert Foss' poem, The Road Not Taken. Given that we're all hunkered down, sheltered in place, it seems likely that most of us are taking stock in who and what we value. Once free, what do we really want to do with our precious time? Throughout Season 3, you will hear 10 stories of individuals who, on their life's path, realized that maybe... Just maybe, the road less traveled was the difference their lives needed. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and as always, thank you for tuning in. As a young and adventurous teenager, Stephen decided to go BMX biking, and this one decision changed his life forever. Stephen shares his journey to find meaning and love in his life. We met Stephen's girlfriend in Season 2, Episode 1. You may recall they are building a life together. In this interview, Stephen shares his beautiful, though challenging life with us. Please be advised there may be some graphic language in this episode. Your discretion is advised. Tell me where you grew up.
1: I grew up in Pleasanton, pretty much, uh, but mostly throughout the Bay Area. We moved around uh, you know, as a young child. I didn't get to live in Pleasanton until I was... Eleven or twelve, um, but lived in Livermore, Fremont, and stuff like that uh, as a kid.
0: All right. So, as a, a as a child, you were very active. Tell us, tell me about your extreme sport life.
1: Yeah, at about nine or ten, my cousins bought me a skateboard, and then I kind of just started my life on wheels at that point. Um, obviously, skateboarding. I tried rollerblading a little bit, never really got into it. Uh, bicycles I really liked and enjoyed, Um, snowboarding and um, wakeboarding, uh, as many of the board type things to do I was trying to do.
0: A friend invites you to go explore a new place in Santa Clara. Tell us about that and that subsequently became a very pivotal moment in your life.
1: Very interesting day that was. Um, Even everybody felt Throughout, even my family felt that day, like even before the incident happened, they felt uh, yeah, it felt interesting that day. Uh, Uh, My mom, my aunt, and all that kind of stuff they they were they're all feeling like interested. But I'm very much uh, a part of a church um, in Dublin, and had made a lot of friends through there. Some of them were into the extreme sports, and some of them weren't all that kind of stuff. I made. lot of friends that did and one of them decided uh, one day uh, hey let's you know go ride somewhere new um, that he had been before I had not and he invited me to come out one uh, morning I think it was a Friday morning um, in the summer so we had nothing to do so it was just like let's go guys let's have fun got up early went to the skate park dropped my car off and then he met up with me there and we went in his truck down to Santa Clara because we he lived in Dublin so uh, we just car pulled down got there you know really early nobody was there it was just us uh, really nice to have the whole park to yourself uh, BMX Park so it actually was all dirt uh, there was no concrete or anything like that uh, this was all man-made by a couple people in the community uh, that had gotten permission after the years and years and years of there being illegal jumps there regardless and then the city Granted them, you know, clearance to build there, even though they knew the risks and all that kind of stuff. But it was a pretty, pretty public place. It was pretty. It was actually right next door to a fire department.
0: Is that part still there?
1: Yeah, uh, I do not believe. I don't know. Actually, it actually might still be there, but um, the last I heard of it, it was. So I don't. But it may. It was a while ago. So. So what happened? So I was trying. We had actually already gone around the park for a good hour, you know, hit majority of the jumps. And then I was trying this one succession of jumps. There was about like six or seven. And I was starting from the very beginning and trying to get all of them in a row. And I was getting stuck on number two, actually. It was really frustrating because I was like, this is only number two. I can actually, I could do the, I could just, you know, cut around and do the, do all the other ones. But I really wanted to get them all in a row. And number two, the way it was designed, and whoever built it designed it to be ridden a very specific way that I wasn't aware of. Uh, and so I kept trying it, and then one time when I tried it, uh, I went up, I bailed, which is, you know, throwing the, you know, I threw threw away so I could, I could land another position because I didn't feel uh, comfortable the way I took off. And then within that moment, I'm not really sure what exactly happened in terms of how my body ended up rotating uh, because I ended up facing the jump when I landed, which was quite interesting. Um, the takeoff. I got my buddy said I had gone about 10, you know 12 feet in the air. My body, my bike went higher than that, landed my bike landed far, far away from me. Definitely not usable after that point too. And I had just, I, I fell pretty hard on the ground right on my back. Uh, so no other broken bones, no other bruises, no other cuts. My body was actually pretty much unharmed other than the spinal break, which I did not know of. At the time, I figured who knows what what's going on. My body's just reacting to my fall. I've fallen hundreds and hundreds of times before then. It wasn't un, you know unlike any other fall in a sense. It was, but it wasn't where... I wasn't afraid for my life or anything like that. And being conscious of the whole time, so it was quite an interesting experience to feel the development of it. And yeah, after about 15 minutes of just laying there, uh, ended up not feeling so comfortable anymore and didn't feel I would be able to get up and walk away from this. And I knew I had to go to you know get ambulance or you know, help at that point, not just having my buddy carry me to his truck. Uh, which he was trying to do or trying to offer. But I was like, no, this is not that kind of situation. Uh, If I can't move my legs, I'm not going to have you guys carry me. (laughs) And um, so I made them call. I was like, no, we're we're calling 911. We're getting an ambulance here. And uh, they came 10 minutes later. And they knew exactly what happened immediately. So they weren't... um, they weren't unaware of the situation. They immediately started me on uh, steroids to help the swelling go down. Uh, I got very lucky to go to Santa Clara Valley Medical, uh, which is the number one in the world, almost, uh, for spinal cord injury. So I got the most, you know, top-of-the-line care. Everybody knew kind of knew what to, what to do. There was no, in a sense, mistakes in that sense. My stay was two months. Got out pretty quick. Yeah, it was... Pretty easy. I met some pretty interesting people too during that time period. Some, actually, I still talk to. Actually, one of them actually walks now. Yeah, he was actually full quad. He couldn't. He was having a hard time breathing. He had a. He was in my room. His alarm was going off all day, all night, just because he couldn't. You know, it's just the you know the sensors just didn't like his body, and his body was like you know struggling, and he should have been upstairs where. You know they had more care and you know control that this was down in the rehab facility and i actually met him again 17 years later at a um i was presenting at a um peer support group and he comes up to me after he's like do you remember me and i'm like i looked at him i was like i felt i was like wait (laughs) i was like wait a second i know you but it was weird because he was walking and standing i was like whoa you're a survivor (laughs) but um the far few you know it's it happens definitely happens
0: okay so you're lying on the ground you recognize i don't have feeling in my legs at what point did you realize that you're paralyzed and what were the thoughts going through your head related to all that
1: i didn't realize until i didn't realize the whole paralysis thing until i got to the you And they laid me on the table, and they're just staring at me. They're trying to shove things on me, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they're like, you're paralyzed. You're like, I'm like, okay. They're like, you're not going to walk in. I'm like, okay. And then pretty much after that, I don't remember uh, because they started me on morphine. (laughs) And then I had morphine for about two weeks. Don't remember pretty much for that time period. Uh, I mean, mid-bits came in and out, but uh, after I got off uh, the morphine, I, you know, I, that's how I got out, basically. Um, what was the morphine for?
0: Were you in pain
1: uh during i mean it was it wasn't necessarily painful, but once the nerves started realizing they were dying, that was what was painful. The nerve damage was quite an interesting burning sensation. um even morphine kind of didn't really kill it. It still was a point where it was that brutal of like screaminess and hurtfulness
0: how long did that stage last?
1: Not very long, luckily. Yeah, not very long. That was maybe four or five days. And then at that point, I had just been addicted to the morphine. So then I just kept going with it. And then it was my family starting to realize, hey, uh, <laughs> stop that. You need to stop, stop the drugs. Because that's kind of what happens with some people. They'll just get stuck there if somebody else doesn't speak up because they, they themselves can't.
0: What part of your spinal cord did you injure and what parts of the body did it con- does that part control
1: so I got injured um, I broke my L1 vertebrae uh, which is uh, kind of your lower the first biggest lower bone below your hips that's the one I broke which popped into my spinal cord pushing it just ever so slightly causing it to what they call a stroke happen to my spinal cord Because it actually was undamaged, weirdly enough. They were questioning why I was paralyzed in the operating room. They're like, this doesn't make sense. It's still here. It pushed it. So it was just enough pressure. And it was like, yeah, I'm done. But I ended up fracturing uh, another two bones, which was T9 and T10, uh, which is my technical feeling level is where that happens is about T9 which is just right about your belly button. And from there on, I can't feel or move anything. I am one of the lucky few, in a sense, I guess, of paralyzed people that don't deal with spasticity, because that can be a real serious problem with some people. I'm very lucky that I don't have to deal with that, but at the same time, I... What what is that, Spasticity is where your body just moves uncontrollably, and that can just happen from just the way of injury.
0: What was the medical like for you and when you were first injured what was the whole medical journey?
1: Being at Santa Clara I got really lucky to meet several physical therapists and uh, occupational therapists that knew a lot and they taught me very well how to be independent. It was no question that I could be independent at that point. They're like what do you want to do? We'll figure it out. So once I had that in my mindset it wasn't very difficult for me to adapt to the rest of this world. And I kind of really got lucky on that sense uh, just to be there at that time period. And then after the fact, after getting out of the hospital, the most drive was my mom. She pushed to do everything. We built a standing frame within the first month so I could start standing again, which was quite interesting. We got this ergo bike that was like a bicycle, like a sit down bicycle that stimulated your leg muscles to basically push the pedals had that for several months trying to do you know I was doing that kind of physical therapy for a while at the time uh, so this was about 2005 or you know 2004 2005 uh, at the time in the news I don't know if you recall but stem cells were like the number one thing going on during that time and I basically ended up trying to do that My mom seeked out this uh, doctor in China, and he had done, you know, five, six hundred patients already uh, with various results. So we're just like, shoot, let's give it a shot. Came up with the money, went over there. That was quite an experience to have a procedure done in another country, uh, especially a country you can't speak their language. And obviously nothing came of that, as you can see. Unfortunately, it was—I mean, but again, it was experimental, and it wasn't ever guaranteed anything. It was just, hey, let's try it. You know, if something comes from it, something comes from it. And if it doesn't, oh well, you know. And because of doing that treatment, I ended up going to a very highly respected rehab facility in Michigan, actually, Um, at the Institute of Michigan. uh, They have a really— large uh, facility for rehab and um, they actually have a walking program there where they make you custom leg braces that are very custom and nice. They're made out of carbon fiber and they have these nice joints and stuff where you can actually mimic walking very well if you can motion correctly. Uh, And I stayed there for about a month or six weeks I want to say and I learned how to walk there actually. It was quite an experience. This was training three days a week, you know, four, it was like three or four hours, but very highly intense training, move your body in ways it didn't want to move. And they taught me how to walk, which was quite interesting because I was obviously already now walking within, you know, two years of my injury, I was already walking, but I was walking with leg braces. It was very, very difficult for me to get very far. It was maybe, you know, I could do it for... 10 feet and I'd be tired, which is not walking to me. That's very much a painful, very struggling thing to see someone do that. Uh, And I never figured that would be sustaining, you know, long-term forever. But I tried to persist for a while uh, because of my mother. She really tried to push it, you know, push it, push it, push it, Um, do more rehab in just the local places. Um, Ended up finding a place in Livermore, which uh, I had heard of a, a physical therapist there, uh, just working with patients previously, and he'd be open to doing things uh, that other people maybe wouldn't. And he he actually did create a very interesting routine for me. By the end, I did that for another year after that, and it was just to a point where I just got tired, and I did not want to continue hurting and struggling because that's kind of what it became. The physical therapist back here, uh, because. Of walking would cause a lot of pain in my hands and in my in in that area, so we came up with an idea to start literally just killing the cells like let's let's just practice numbing your hands <laughs> and then once he started doing that, it started clicking my 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 mind I'm like, I'm killing the things that I can feel now well what what why so I can use the things that i can't can't no no, yeah, so at that point i I step back and I stopped pretty much majority, I've stopped all physical therapy and and all that kind of stuff, Um, and I haven't done it since. Some people, you know, they can gain stuff from it. It just depends on where you're at and what level of injury you're kind of dealing with.
0: I think it was at that moment when you fully accepted not being a able body.
1: Yeah, that that would, in a sense, yeah, that would be the most accepted moment, in a sense, I had to make sure, in a sense, surely making me have a reality check like yeah if you're if you're going to walk it's going to be painful. I don't want that, so and there's no point for that. So I, I it was more of like yeah, okay, I'm sitting. That's it. That's fine. Let's just continue sitting, and not gripe about it anymore.
0: How did your friends and family respond to
1: your accident? That was an interesting time period because I, I said earlier I was a part of a church. So I had lots and lots of uh, friends just coming constantly and my family always coming constantly too. Majority of the time, one or you know, both of my parents would try to be there overnight you know, if they could. My little sister, uh, it was interesting for her to see the whole development process for her because she, I mean, she took it interestingly as well because of who I was and who I really kind of put myself to be at that point. It, would, it, it affected me, but I, I tried to not you know, obviously I tried to not push it on any of anybody else. Obviously they only, they felt the way they felt regardless. My father, he ended up, he took it very interestingly where he kind of, you know, in a sense, like not necessarily, you know, kind of was in denial, but in a sense was in denial of it where he, you know, you know, it happened, but what do I, you know, I, what do I do? I can't even like fathom what to do. So there was no, there was no like, you know, Go out and do this or do this, do this. It was just like, okay, you're injured. What's, what do we do? My mother, though, on the other hand, kind of took over most of it. She really drove a lot of things. She drove, you know, the physical therapy. She drove all of that for the first few years of my injury. Obviously, it took time to realize, you know, what had set in and what had happened. But also, you know, we all grow and things happen. But yeah, at the very beginning, it was more just like, we need to make you walk. You must walk again. If you're not walking, you're not normal. Because that's obviously what everybody in this world thinks and believes. But then again, I've grown now to to know, obviously, much further than that in life. But yeah, in the beginning, it was very interesting to see how how much not fake love but you know in a sense fake love people would give to you just because they felt bad for the situation that happened because they didn't themselves know how to even fathom what had happened.
0: Did you return to Foothill High School and what was that like
1: for you if you did? So when I got injured it was during summertime so it was it was right in the middle. I literally missed one week of my senior year. It's only because I had gotten out the week that week literally like literally gotten out of the hospital that week and they told me I couldn't go to school like you know just like give it a couple days like I was like okay okay Um, even though I would have gone um, to the first few days but it was the first few days nobody really does anything on those days anyway so uh, but I had gone I started the next week so it was pretty much a fast transition for me to just dive right back into life didn't really seem like I should necessarily sit and wait on anything uh, because I was pretty healthy. I, you know, I wasn't, you know, I, I got lucky in a sense where yeah, I didn't damage anything else in my body but my spinal cord. So I just had to kind of get over that fact. And once that, once that transition was strong enough for me to, to move around on my own, and even still within the first few months, people would push me around. Um, and actually majority of that year, people, because Foothill was on a hill, so people would push me around on the hill. I'd, I'd be like, hey, <laughs> push me up this hill. A little help, please. Um, but luckily, too, the the way we scheduled my classes, it wasn't down any hills. Or, you know, the way it would go would be downhill versus going up a hill. And then I also got, I had an off-campus class, too. So I was, I was always leaving in the afternoon. And then driving was interesting, too, because I, I almost didn't skip a phase literally my you know once my parents figured out all i needed was hand controls you know we got me a car and got hand controls in it and then off all i had to do was pass the test and, you know again and that was it and driving i mean i can't remember what it's like to drive with feet anymore i i used to remember but now i can't at all it it's actually super second nature for me to stop to just push forward with my hand
0: so you get injured you go to high school and then what happens Where'd you go to school? What was your work life after that? You know, what journey were you, okay, I know I'm in a wheelchair. This is still what I'm going to accomplish. What was going through your head, Stephen?
1: So after graduating high school, my plan was originally to be an automotive mechanic or go into that industry. And it was interesting because I, um, during high school, I got an opportunity to go to a small event of like, hey, you know, this is like, you know here's an opportunity you guys can go to school at this this blah 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 institute uh, for technical training uh, i went i actually went there and they looked at me and they're like sorry but i don't know what we can do for you that kind of like blew my mind in a sense after being told i can do anything i want and then them going yeah we can't help you do what you want to do and at that point I just I wasn't powerful enough in myself to overcome them and be like, yeah, right, watch me. So it, it was kind of like a downer on that part and that kinda of spoiled kind of my you know, my in a sense my dream into what what I was gonna do and at that point I just was like, Okay, well, I'll just go to Las Positas and you know, just do classes there, find kinda of something maybe I'm interested in there. I took lots of random little classes there, uh, like uh, computer programming and um, like Photoshop, like web design stuff. Did yeah, did that kind of a little bit here and there. Never really kind of drove into anything deeply. Didn't really like nothing struck to me yet. And then I was just starting to um, get back together with my friend that he, because he was kind of crazy. But so I stopped talking to him for a little while, and then we became friends again. And then he was talking about doing manufacturing and CNC and doing machine stuff. And it was something that people had never really kind of offered me before. So I was like, I'll try that. Sure, it's a trade. Might as well look into it. Then I really got really deep into that uh, because I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, Went to several different trade schools for it. Learned from a a lot of good people in that industry to really advance the knowledge of manufacturing because that's not an easy thing and it's actually surprisingly not a much talked about thing in this world because everything it comes from manufacturing
0: so where did that leave you
1: so So I ended up going to several schools like I said with actually never finishing a you know for a degree at any of those I was already talking with an employer and kind of basically it had a job at that point Um, So I got to learn a lot very quickly, actually working more so than I did ever at school. But what taught me at school was a lot of stuff these people didn't know, which was how to manipulate this program, which that's all the school taught me how to do. But because I knew that, that's how I got myself basically into this job, which was a CNC programmer, uh, which is basically a job where you kind of you don't ever touch a machine. You're just sitting on a computer all day long. Uh, Just looking at the models and basically figuring out how to make it. Um, And then you manipulate in a program on the computer how to uh, make the part with this machine.
0: Have you tried to build anything or have you been successful building anything for um, people who are not fully able-bodied?
1: Oh yeah, actually I've, I have a few things out in the world. I actually myself have made a camera holder, uh, like a tripod that sits on your wheelchair. But it's not like any other ones, it's actually a quick release one. It just clamps on really quick and you can take it off super quick so it's not there all the time. And that was a fun little project that I worked on that was 10 years ago. As a CNC programmer, Programmer, I ended up making CNC stands for Computer Numeral Control. Yeah, as a CNC programmer, I developed a side guard for a wheelchair, which are on Ashley's wheelchair, actually. And those actually have. I made those for her six years ago, and she has never needed side guards again and will never need them for the rest of her life because they are literally indestructible. So, <laughs> yeah, I've also. I'm also starting a business, actually, that makes stuff for wheelchair people, trying to advocate customizability. Customizability. Is that a word? I don't know. Because there's nothing out there for anybody who's disabled that needs a custom part. They have to do it themselves. Uh, there's no service out there for that, um, which is quite interesting where every wheelchair is custom, so you would think somebody would actually already start be doing this, but there isn't.
0: What is the structure or the product that you built that you're most proud of?
1: Okay, so my friend, Ted Kilroy, was a part of a project in 2009-ish with UC Berkeley, and they did a medical exoskeleton device with a couple of PhDs, and he helped them kind of start a company, which you guys now know as Exobionics. Uh, And that company is out there in um, Richmond. And they have been making an exoskeleton suit for disabled people to walk. And they've had tons and tons of success with that. They're also now moving into other realms of exoskeleton stuff as well. But uh, the professor who developed that suit uh, went on to continue to develop more suits. Uh, He had another next generation suit that he was trying to get tested. He contacted my friend Ted to come out and try this suit that he was trying with the new batch of PhD students. I actually got the chance to tag along with Ted to this very first trial and um, got the chance to get into it, tried it. It actually worked pretty well for me. And the biggest thing is they were looking for something, or some excuse me, someone to help participate in a documentary they were doing uh, a week after this, uh, this first meet. Uh, so I said yes, why not? Sure, uh, and we kind of went from there. And what happened was, I basically was at the university for the next week, uh, walking and trying and getting the the suit to perform well for me. Uh, and this is still very early on in the stage of the development of the suit. So it worked, but it kind of didn't work. It, I mean, it worked enough uh, to make uh, to make it work was more of like the human kind of intervening a little bit more and uh, manipulating the suit to really function the way you wanted it to. Uh, but yeah, so after the first week, uh, the, the, the uh, BBC came out from... Um, over there in the UK, and they were doing a series of uh, a bunch of new devices coming out in this world uh, with a man named Richard Hammond. He was hosting a show uh, to kind of showcase all this new kind of technology in, in the world. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I still got to be a part of that. Uh, that is on the internet if you want to go watch that. Um, It's, you know, it's pretty easy to find BBC exoskeleton, Uh, search Google and you'll find that one. Um, And from there, it kind of took off because it seemed, the suit seemed to work really well for me. Uh, And at the time I was still in school. Uh, so I had a bunch of free time, not a bunch of free time, but I did have some free time to, to give to the students, uh, that needed to help finish their PhD thesis. Uh, so I was there maybe once every week or maybe every other week, um, for the next six months, almost actually. Uh, they, they definitely got a lot, uh, of feedback from me. I I wanted to help with that. I wanted to to get the suit to feel comfortable and to make sure that the students were kind of more understanding of what the kind of needs were out there. Now, in the middle of this too, the the students were, you know, finishing their PhDs. Uh, They also had just started a company, uh, and then once they got their PhDs, they were going to spin off into the company, uh, which was called US Bionics. And they, there's uh, four of them that had started this group, um, and they all uh, were a part of exoskeletons in certain ways, and maybe not all in the medical side, but uh, I did deal with uh, d- definitely a good number of them with the medical side. Uh, but we also the the company did not just make medical suits; they made uh, other exoskeletons as well. Uh, but I was heavily involved with the medical side, obviously and during the the very first beginnings of this you know trying to get generate money and all this kind of stuff uh i was interviewing with a lot of people uh that uh were looking for fund you know to to come in and fund uh and you know all the big wigs uh i got to meet a lot of unique individuals that way where otherwise i probably wouldn't have been in that situation but we ended up going uh, over, uh, over to Italy a few handful of times, actually, because uh, we had a part. They had a partner over there that uh, heavily invested in them, and um, so I got to go to Italy a handful of times and walk around uh, the Vatican City, the uh, Colosseum of Rome. Uh, it was pretty amazing experience to to be doing that, uh, especially knowing that. Uh, hardly maybe if not at all been done ever in the world and uh, to be one of the first people to do that was kind of uh, amazing to me to be able to get that opportunity Uh, because we also went to uh, Dubai and we competed in a competition in Dubai called Robotics for Goods and uh, this was actually the first year they had held Robotics for Goods. Um, They had previously held uh, a competition for Drones for good. Uh, which actually was still going on as we were there, too. That that competition was happening at the exact same time. It was the same competition, but uh, there was also a a new... They were trying to fund new projects for uh, robotics, and we met a lot of awesome people there. There was people making self-driving wheelchairs. There was people uh, helping uh, blind people see. It was... Very, very amazing technology you could see that these individuals were coming up with. And uh, we ended up actually getting to win that first competition. Uh, we won a million dollars in that first competition, which kind of blew us away. It was, like, unexpected. We were like, oh, my God, like, there's these, all these other awesome projects, and here we are <laughs> with an exoskeleton, and yet we ended up getting to win that. that. was That was a great experience. I really want to try now to do something that really actually makes an impact and actually changes the community as a whole rather than kind of giving a false hope, which is something that I really, really, really don't enjoy having. Uh, False hopes are the hardest thing to deal with.
0: Stephen has been on many life adventures, and though he has been forced to face each adventure from his wheelchair, he refuses to slow down. In this episode, it was so difficult for us to include all Stephen's many courageous endeavors, but we hope we conveyed that Stephen does not believe in limits. If you listen to season two, Ashley, The Wheelchair Jedi, then Stephen's story probably sounds pretty familiar, and it should. Stephen and Ashley are building a life together. They do not ask for sympathy nor your help. They ask that you see them for who they are Two ambitious people demanding that they set their own limits, not you nor I. I find their no-fear attitude to be both inspiring and motivating. These two adventure seekers don't think twice when jumping out of planes or climbing the highest mountain. They travel to all parts of this big and wonderful world. And throughout each life-defining experience, they dare anyone to try and keep them from fully experiencing all that life offers. Together, Stephen and Ashley will not let a wheelchair define who they are and what they're capable of. And if you ask me, they're pretty damn good at doing so for themselves. It appears to me their brave spirits fly higher than most of us can even dare to imagine. We hope you enjoyed this episode, which was engineered and produced by Elizabeth Stanley and Karen Castro. We want to thank all our guests whose open and honest responses shaped another great season. As always, we need to thank our listeners whose support means so much to us. Additionally, we must thank our great contributors for their music, Hunter Lewis, Robert Stanley, Danny Burns, and Alejandro of Dro Beats. We also need to thank Justice Stanley for web and social media content, Jasmine Smith for web design, St. Hall for graphic artwork, and our sponsor, Solid Lotion Bars, and the JEI Learning Center. If you wish to find us, you can do so on our website, podsavetherestofus.com, as well as on Instagram at podsavetherestofus, and on the Twitter at savetherestofus. We'd like to remind you to please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning in.